Well, it's always a pleasure to be up here teaching the Word. Actually, it's the most fun thing I get to do in my life is to teach the Bible, so thank you for being here to allow me to do that. My name is Brian. I'm uh, currently and fairly newly on the deacons board, and I've been hanging around here for a while. I've called this church my home for a few decades now. But who are we? What is, what is the church? In this series that we've been going through, it's been great. It's uh, the abiding life of a disciple, and a lot of that we do focus on the individual. What do we do as people, as individual disciples of Jesus, as individual followers of Jesus? But today, we need to spread that out a little bit. Whoops. Sorry. That was my wife checking in on me. Anything need to be fixed there, honey? I'm okay. Um... Here's the mute. Sorry, dear, don't take it personally. <clears throat> Did you hear that bing? That's all I got. Anyway, yeah. now the embarrassing part's over. We're in uh, <laughs> Hebrews 10.25. I'm just kidding. It's going to get a lot more embarrassing. No. <clears throat> Hebrews 10.25, Steve read to us this little verse, this little clip in the middle of a verse. Not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some. Let's just pray before we start to unpack that. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us your word. And we dedicate ourselves to that here this morning. Amen. I do want to add that those of you who sent your kids off to Quanos this weekend, when I left them last night, they were fine. Ryan and Heather still had a couple nerves left each, so I think they're okay. They had some of the Kaleo students also helping with that. If you sent a son... Let me just, when they tell the stories, just say this, what about the yogurt? That's all I'm saying. All right, that's between you and them. I know, it was a really good time down there. And, you know, as we deal with COVID and stuff, the last major event Qantas was able to do was liftoff two years ago. So we were there this weekend with youth from up and down the island for liftoff. And it was kind of a reopening and it was, uh, there was a celebratory mood. It was really good. Let's look at those verses a little more fully. Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. Let us hold fast. This is how the idea begins for this writer. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So this is what it's about. Our hope. Without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Are we perfectly faithful? No. Is our hope perfect? No. Doesn't have to be. Because he who promised it is faithful. He is strong enough. He who promises faithful. But let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, we're going to focus on that little phrase in the middle, not forsaking our own assembling together. Now, this is from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which I I like. There's lots of great translations, and it's good to kind of go back and forth between them. But sometimes the wording isn't what I would say. 
I like to read a Bible that it sounds like God's talking to me in my own language. Uh, I, I wouldn't normally say forsaking or assembling. It just, to me, it sounds a little churchy. So I threw up there the verse as we find it in the New Living. The New Living says, let us not neglect our meeting together. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. That, that I can imagine myself saying. Let's not neglect getting together. What we're going to look at this morning is the role of the church in the life of the believer and the role of the believer in the life of the church. Again, this is, we're still talking about growing. We're still talking about training with Jesus. But we are not all isolated in our own little pods. We can't be. And let's see how Scripture describes that. We're going to look at three questions for that verse this morning. Who? Who is he talking to when he says this? Why should these people keep getting together? And how? What, what should it look like when they get together? Who, why, and how? Now i got to confess, I've, I've got a teacher background, and I, I prefer to teach than preach. So the first part of what we go through this morning, you might find a little teachy, a little dry. Stick with me. We'll, we'll get to some preaching towards the end. But I think it's important we understand who. Now, first of all, this verse... It's part of the book called the Hebrews, and we call it Hebrews because it's specifically written to Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century. Now, it's not exclusive to them. It applies to us all. But the idea is that most of the book is explaining how Jesus fulfills the covenants of the Old Testament, how he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, how the priesthood and the temple point towards Jesus and how he brought them to life. And if you remember a couple of years ago, Chris Kuhn doing his recitations, one night he got up here and did the book of Hebrews. If on a good day, I might be able to recite John 3.16. It might sound a little King Jamesy because I grew up with that, but still, Chris Kuhn gets up here and he does, uh, I'll do Hebrews. <laughs> okay. And he had uh, some of the paraphernalia from the... It was great, if you remember that. I think you might still be able to find it online, actually. So this is that book, the book that's specifically speaking to those issues that Jesus, the Jew, fulfilled for them. How the Old Testament led towards that. So specifically, that's who this is written to, because he's just finished talking about Jesus, our high priest. But isn't just talking about Jewish believers in Jesus in the first century. No. Again, we go back to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this is a couple verses earlier, this is where the writer to the Hebrews says who he's talking to. Those of us who have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus confidence. I was talking to a friend a while ago, Christian guy, good guy. He said, oh, I don't deserve anything. <laughs> and I reminded him, you deserve everything that Christ accomplished for you. You can enter the holy places, the personal space of God with confidence. Not because you're good looking. Not because of anything you've ever done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And you can be confident in that. Because the Father loved his Son. You go in under the name of the Son, oh, you're welcome home. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not because we like Jesus, not because we agree with most of what Jesus says, not because we think Jesus was a cool guy and we're trying to be more like him, but because of his blood, because we accept the fact that we are deeply rooted in sin. We are separated from our creator who wants to be with us but can't because of our condition, our sin nature. And so he sends his son, as we sang earlier, to the cross. He bore my cross and yours. And the relationship I get to have with him is the one he began on the cross when his blood was poured out as an atonement for my sin for all the brokenness in me, all of the inadequacy that separates me from my creator. It is by the blood of Jesus that we enter the holy places with confidence. These are the people that this person is writing to, that we actually want to enter the holy places of God and that we know that we can because of Christ's accomplishments for us. This is the group of people. This is who. Now, you and I would use a word for that that he actually doesn't use here. We would say, oh, he's talking about the church. Yes, he is. Now, the history of the word church is kind of weird. Why we use that? It doesn't really matter here this morning. We know what we mean when we say that word. We mean the people of God. Now, it's okay to refer to the building as the church. Yeah, but we know it's not the building or the political structure. We know it's you and me the people who are washed in the blood. Jesus actually only uses the word church twice, which is pretty interesting. I'm not saying it wasn't on his mind. It was always on his mind in all of his teaching, but he only uses the word twice. We're going to look at both of those to see how Jesus defined us. See, when we talk about who we are, we need to see how does God see us? Not just what we think we should be doing. What does God actually think about us as a group. And so in Matthew 18, we find one of the quotes that Jesus uses. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Now again, this is straight out of Moses. This is, you know, two or three witnesses. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the people. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is one of the cases where Jesus used, one of the two cases where Jesus uses this word. And it's, it's kind of an interesting little story. He, he thinks that we are a group of people that expect things from each other, encourage things from each other, challenge each other, rely on each other, and discipline each other. There's a lot going on. We're not just a club of people that happen to get along and hang out. There's, there's more going on in this group, in Jesus' mind. Now, I want to just touch on the last part for a second. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. <laughs> there have been times when we have misused that part of it, thinking that that means, oh, now we get to gossip about them, give them dirty looks. 
let me remind us what Jesus says about how you treat Gentiles and tax collectors. You love them even more. How did Jesus treat Samaritans? He used them as an example all the time of how to love strangers. In fact, you know what? The first person that Jesus revealed himself to as Messiah was a Samaritan woman of questionable repute. Long before his disciples figured it out. Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector. So when Jesus says, treat them as a tax collector and as a Gentile, he's not saying, oh, you're allowed to hate them. He's saying, no, love them even more. But recognize you're on a different path. Your understanding of how God wants you to live is not theirs. So just just understand that. Recognize that they are on a different path and leave them in God's hands. But love them more. This is how Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus viewed the church. The second time he mentions the church is a little bit earlier in Matthew 16. This is... I love to call this a turning point in human history, and it, it, it is. And, and I could defend that to the ends of the earth. Talk to historians, economists, psychologists, whatever. This moment, Jesus says, oh, what do people, who do people say that I am? And they've got all these you know, things in them. Peter says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's talking to a man, a rabbi, and he says, you're the son of God. This understanding that Jesus was the Son of God, we cannot imagine the last two years of human history without that content. Empires have risen and fall. I'm not saying everything we've done is good because of that. I'm just saying this confession of Peter's is a turning point in human history. It's phenomenal. And this is how Jesus responds. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out. You didn't do the math. He says, No, my Father who is in heaven showed you this. Guess what, Peter? You have just become an antenna for God. You've just spoken something to other humans that came directly from God himself. You didn't figure it out. You can't take credit for it. God is speaking. And then he says this, I tell you, you are Peter, and the word is Petros. But on this rock, or and on this rock, this Petra, I will build my church. This is the second time Jesus uses the word. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if we look at this verse in context... It's pretty clear he's not talking about Peter as an individual. That Peter is the rock. He, he, Jesus had one of those wonderfully twisted sense of humors that we see in a lot of Jewish literature in the first century where they, a lot of puns and word plays. So he's saying, because what Peter has just done is confessed this message that God gave him. Peter didn't come up with a message. Peter didn't say that out of his own strength or out of his own wisdom. Peter was just the mouthpiece for the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, that is the rock that God is speaking in, that God is saying, Jesus is the Christ. On that rock, I will build my church. On that confession, on that knowledge. And as we go through the rest of Scripture that it becomes the foundation stone, that Jesus is the Christ. 
doesn't mention a whole lot about Peter and Peter's role. So it's easy to interpret Jesus' words by how things played out from there. But with these two quotes, we can see what Jesus saw as the church. According to Jesus, the church will be people who know that he is the Christ and will be responsible for training and discipline. In the two brief places that Jesus mentions the church, he makes it clear that the church will be people who know that he is the Christ and will be responsible for training and discipline. Simple as that. But he does say, I will build my church. Interesting way of wording it. Where's my notes go? Okay, I want to ask you something. I expect you to yell out. And I'm a little bit deaf after 20 years in the classroom, so you can yell out. When do many people say the church began? Pentecost? Any other ideas? I know it's one of those teacher moments, right? You know they're just going to trap you. You don't want to answer because he's going to make you look stupid. <laughs> you said that. Hey, as teachers, we get very little joy, so give us those moments when we get to abuse your children, okay? Normally, we think of the church beginning at Pentecost. Certainly, something amazing happened there. Let's look at something else, though, because... The idea of the church actually happens long before that. And we don't really get it described until the last book of the Bible, which is ironic, but this is what the last book of the Bible says in Revelation 18. He's talking about two groups of people. Most of the people and some of the people. And this is how those two groups are divided. He's talking about those people, and he says, those are everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, it may be confusing, and it's because of this. Greek is, you know, Greek was the language that God chose to explain the New Testament in, and it's very clear and wonderful in many cases, but it can also be kind of confusing at times. And this verse, the way it's written, we can really take it two ways. What happened before the foundation of the world? Some of your translations will say that people's names were written in a book before the foundation of the world, and some translations will say the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Interesting to think about. Doesn't matter. Not for what we're looking at today. What we're looking at today is just to realize that before the foundation of the world, there was a group in God's mind. There was a group of people connected Either the lamb was slain by then or the book was written by then. We're not either one. God, before the foundation of the world, had an idea of his people, his congregation, his church. Before stars and coffee and the color green, God had in mind his people. Before the foundation of the world. So you see, when we talk about church, we can describe it in human terms as far as people we get along with and people we agree with. And How does God view it? Oh, he sees it as this massive project that he, he has had in mind all along. It's his church. It's his people. And we need to remember that. What unites us isn't what we do. What unites us is how God sees us. 
and what God expects of us. And yet when Jesus says, I will build my church, it still kind of sounds like it's something that hasn't happened yet. And it kind of has and it kind of hasn't. When he says, I will build my church, again, the language is a little... It could be, I will build my church as in some future thing, but it could also mean, I will rebuild my church, or I will establish my church. And a lot of translations use the word establish there. I will establish my church. We live in a little house on Tulin Street. It's a nice little house. I really enjoy it. Kids and grandkids have run into walls, and, you know, it's a great spot, full of memories. But there's something really weird about it. You can tell there, there was something happened. There's a where the, the, the entrance in the back, there's a, a room with cupboards you can't reach and stuff because the house actually wasn't built for that place. It was part of a fishing village or logging village somewhere. I don't know. It was built as a rancher. And I'm told, I wasn't there at the time, it came down by barge and then got moved up to our lot and they had built a foundation there for it. And then that house was put on that foundation. It was established on the foundation, in a sense, rebuilt on that foundation. It already existed, but it didn't have a foundation. And so that house was put on the foundation, and so they made a full basement. So they had to take one of the small rooms, probably a laundry room, and cut the floor out so they could make room for the stairs to go down to the basement. So if you come in the back door, it's just a really weird-looking Frankenstein kind of room. It, it just doesn't make sense. But that, that's why. It was established on a different foundation. Jesus, from before the foundation of the world, knew about his people and had them in mind throughout the entire Old Testament. But there was going to be something different. He was going to put it on a new foundation. Revelation 12, 10 and 11. This is, again, is how the people are described, God's people, God's congregation. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is, you know, Revelation 12. It's in the middle of Revelation. There's still some weird stuff to happen after this. But this person is, is seeing this, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the people of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I'm sorry, I'm I, I just not sure if I want to pause, but I already paused, so let me just put it this way. If you accuse yourself, if you wallow in guilt, like I do, just remember it's not from God. God points out flaws so he can heal them. The deceiver points out problems so he can rub our faces in it. Anyway, let's go on. He accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him, the deceiver, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto Death. They saw themselves as more than just this physical life. But by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What's the blood of the Lamb? Again, it has one purpose. We need it for reestablishing our connection to our Creator. Because we fell so far. The blood of the Lamb. 
The father watched his son die. It was pretty hard. It was drastic. God allowed creation to shake for that moment because God was in torment. So let's understand, it wasn't a casual thing that they were doing there. There was no other way for God to accomplish what he was going to accomplish than to allow his son to die and his blood to be shed. How do we triumph over the evil one? By the blood of the lamb. We claim the blood of the lamb. We say, I am pure and holy in the eyes of God because I've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And the deceiver says, yeah, but you still do that. Yeah, but my dad loves me. And he sees me. That's perfect and holy. And by the word of their testimony, I love the way that's tucked in there. The blood of the Lamb is what God has done. The word of the testimony is how we respond. And it's part of our triumph. It's part of defeating the accuser. It's the word of our testimony. You remember two weeks ago, Ryan was up here. I love when Ryan preaches. It doesn't happen very often, so if he's preaching, get here. He talked about testimony, and he said something really wise about testimony. It's not just your conversion experience. Someone asked you to give your testimony. Well, I was 13, I went to summer camp and asked Jesus into my heart. Well, that is wonderful. But that's like asking the guy that walked across China, what was he like? And he goes, I did that. No, no, that's the first step is whatever, asking Jesus into your heart at summer camp. The testimony is what's going on now. What's happened in the last week or month or year? What is the ongoing power of God in your life doing? God's alive. He's not a memory of something that happened when you were a kid. Your testimony is what God is doing now. The blood was accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. Our testimony is what God is doing now. It's our response. It's us saying, yes, we know who you are, God. This is what you're doing today. Today. And they love not their lives unto death. Because there is more than this physical life. The word then. Let's just briefly go back to the word church. It just means assembly or gathering. And the first time God really starts using it for his people, interesting, it's back in Egypt. When he's talking about the people who are going to offer Passover lambs and put the blood on their door and be saved from the oldest one in the family dying, and they're going to escape and, and do the whole exodus thing. This is where he starts talking about them as my assembly, my people, my congregation. He uses this Hebrew word kahal. And throughout the Old Testament of the Scripture, we see God talking about my people, my congregation. Kahal, kahal, kahal. Be careful. Kahal, there's nothing in front of that. Um, a couple hundred years before Jesus, Greek culture was spreading throughout the world and Jewish people were starting to move their way out. And they still used Hebrew in the temple and in Jerusalem and in the streets, but a lot of people are using Greek as well. So they decide that it would be important to have a translation of the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, in Greek. So they do that. And when the translators are doing it, when they come to this word kahal, this congregation, they have a Greek word that they use. It's the word ecclesia or ecclesia. So by the time Jesus and the apostles are teaching and thinking and writing, 
In the Jewish mindset, this kahal is also this ecclesia, this gathering, this people, the called out ones, the ones that God already had in mind before the foundation of the world. And so as the apostles are teaching about this, and as Jesus is talking about my kahal, my ecclesia, it's the same word. For them, there's no separation between Old Testament and New Testament in that sense. It's God's people. This is, what, this is how he worked through his people here, and this is here, and this is how he did it here. And Jesus said, my kahal, my congregation, my assembly is going to be established on this faith that I am the Christ. Good. My, I'm behind my notes, but you kept up with me. Thank you. There was a problem, though with this kahal, this ecclesia, this assembly, this church. And it's very clear in the Old Testament. And in fact, <laughs> I mean, Moses, an amazing guy, did amazing things, but he had to give some pretty hard messages. And a lot of his teaching was, this is how you be perfect. This is the right thing to do. But then he had to stand there and say, and when you blow it, God is going to do this. <laughs> A few times, Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy. This is what the Lord expects of you. And when you blow it, this is what's going to happen. It's right there in the law at the beginning. Right from the beginning, there's a warning. You can't do this. Now, in some places it says, you can do this. You can obey this. This is not out of reach to you. Try. And yet there's this recognition that sin is so deep in us, this, this evil inclination, that even a perfect law from a perfect God is not enough to change us. And so through the history of the Old Testament, we see this put into place, that we fail, that there's a problem with these covenants, and the problem isn't with God, and the problem isn't God's word, it's that we can't do it. It's like trying to teach your dog how to fly. You may be a really good teacher, and he may be a really good dog, but you're not going to be able to teach the dog how to fly. And God, the perfect Almighty God, gives us his perfect word and says, but there's, you're not going to be able to do it. Right from the beginning, there's a warning. But he still gives it to us. He says, this is the standards. This is what life should be like. In fact, what he says, this is what you will be like once we get rid of sin. Jeremiah is, is one of those prophets that I'm glad I'm not like. Poor guy. He was so young. He had no confidence and God said, perfect. And if you want to know what Jeremiah's life was like, and I mean don't disrespect, he's in Ukraine. And we, we're shocked by some of the things that we see going on there in our lifetime, in our day. Jeremiah was alive at a time when Jerusalem was being destroyed. The country was being destroyed from great powers from the outside. And he would look off, Jerusalem's on a hill, so we could look off in the countryside and see smoke coming up from where there used to be villages. And it's bad enough to think that your homes are being destroyed and your businesses are being destroyed. What these people also understood is they were chosen to be the priesthood of God for the entire world, for all humanity. And that, they were losing that. That a, a temple had been established here that the prophets say, well, someday the whole world will come worship at this temple, and now it's being torn down. They're, they're losing so much more than their homes and their businesses and their schools and their hospitals. They're losing their very identity as God's people, and it's their fault. It's no wonder we know Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. He had a bad day every day. 
But you know, there's something in the middle there that God gives him this ray of hope. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a renewed covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And again, the idea idea doesn't mean brand new. It means reinvigorated or or upcycled, right? We're going to make this new covenant not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, and I knew they would, and I warned them. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on stone, not on scrolls, not on your phone. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Jeremiah had this vision that what God was going to do wasn't simply build a new temple, build a new city, but that he was going to change humanity. That the problem from the beginning was we couldn't do those things that God wanted. We could not be perfect. And so God is going to change us. The newness of the covenant isn't that God's going to come up with an easier idea and say, okay, this time it's not so hard. No, the difference with this renewed covenant is he's going to change us. And that brings us back to the day of Pentecost. When we so often visualize the church being born, and, and, and there's reasons for that. There's good reasons for that. But what happened at Pentecost? Pentecost, you know, each of the Jewish festivals is some type of declaration of the Messiah, of what he did or what he's going to do. It's amazing. It's a map of the work of Jesus. And Pentecost is really interesting because if you go back and do the math, check the dates, Passover is when they got out of Egypt, and it tells us how long they were traveling until they got to the mountain. And when God gave the covenant, and when he gave the law, Pentecost is actually on the date when God gave the law. It's a celebration of the law, when it was given on stone and parchment. Pentecost is, an observa- is to observe when God gave the law. And so here we are. The same amount of time from Passover to Pentecost as it was from Jesus' death and resurrection to Pentecost when these people, these Jews from all over the world who speak different languages are gathered in Jerusalem. It's one of the three festivals when all Jewish are are supposed to be in Jerusalem. And here they are, looking differently, wearing different clothes, talking differently, but all dedicated to God. And then what we think of as Pentecost happens Now, if you remember the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments, the old classic, when he gives the law, when God writes the Ten Commandments, there's this pillar of fire, and the fire comes out and writes on their stone, and there's actually reasons for that. We we dig into some of the Jewish literature, that's probably what it was like, fire writing on stone. And here we get to Pentecost, and there's this group of people who know that Jesus is the Christ. And there's a bunch of other people. And all of them together can't obey the law. But this group of people that know that Jesus is the Christ, fire lands on them as God is writing the law on their hearts. And the Spirit comes upon them and empowers them and (laughs) infects them with God's character. The fruit of the Spirit is just who God is. It's God's character 
that starts to blossom in them. That's the celebration of Pentecost, the moment when the law is written on our hearts through the Spirit. We begin to be changed from the inside. We're not just given a new set of laws, an easier set of standards, not as many commandments as Moses gave. No, that's not the point. The point is we are the ones that are changed. God's standards don't change. He changes us. He empowers us to become his sons, his nation of priests that Jeremiah wept over. Peter reminds us that's who we are now. We are that nation that God promised, that God envisioned, that God talked about before the foundation of the world. And so we get back to Hebrews 10. Notice we're still in, uh, we're starting point two now. Why? So we've got, oh, we're already three minutes over, and we're getting into our second point. Don't worry. I've ordered pizza. No. <laughs> Why do we get together then? Hebrews 10, he just said, don't stop getting together like some people do. He's not saying they're not saved or they're not real Christians. He's just saying, don't do that. It's too dangerous. Why? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Some of your Bibles will say good works. We're supposed to do good stuff. But we're not supposed to think of the good stuff as an Old Testament law that we have to do to make God like us or to make ourselves acceptable. No, we do good things because of what God has done for us, because God loves us, because God has saved us. Doing those good things is our response. It's part of the word of our testimony. God has freed me, so I free you. God has forgiven me. I get to forgive you. God's been generous with me. I get to be generous with you. This is the word of my testimony. This is who my God is. This is who my God is making me. We stimulate each other to love and good works. If we're going to talk about love, we've got to go to John, one of my favorite writers in the New Testament. In 1 John, he just, he, it's so packed full of stuff. But let's just look at a couple of verses. 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When God says to love people, he's not saying, it's, it's not like Moses where he says, okay, go and do this. God doesn't just push us ahead and say, go try to love somebody. No, 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 no. God's saying, don't forget that I love you. I have died for you. You are washed in the blood. Pass it on. If you have trouble loving someone else, come back to me and remind yourself how much I love you. And then go pass it on. This is love, not that we love God. It doesn't begin with our attempt to please God. He loved us. That's where it begins. He sent his son for us. Next verse, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. That's what it's based on, the blood of the Lamb. We love because he first loved us. We don't love because we're supposed to try harder. We love because we're focused on his love for us. That's how we see ourselves as the redeemed, the loved, the washed. 1 John 4, 20. And here it gets a little bit tricky. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not, he does not love his brother whom he has seen, can't love God whom he has not seen. I can't say, I love God, I love God, and then walk up to Al and hit him. I hate Al. God, Al's right there. If I'm capable of love, I better be able to express it to a person right there who I can see. And Al, of course, is one of the easiest guys to love, so that's not a fair comparison. But 
God says, if you can't love what is physically tangible, don't pretend that you can love the eternal God. If you can't demonstrate love in small things, don't, don't claim to be loving God in great ways. It's just simple. If you say you love God, it better be visible in the way you love other people. The tax gatherers and the Gentiles. And then John Back in his gospel, also remembers Jesus saying this in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does a good church look like? Oh, they love each other. What color are their pews? Who cares? Okay, there's a reason for it. I mean, we don't want to clash. There's a lot of other things that we do as the church that are, you know, just reasonable. We take care of them. What is a good church? They love each other. How will people know that you're a follower of God? Because you love the people around you. You love the people who love your God. Because you're both washed in the blood of the same lamb. And even though the words of your testimony might be a bit different, it all points back to the same lamb. <sighs> Why do we get together? We get together to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know the idea of discipling and mentoring? There's an old saying we have in teaching. If you tell me, I'll forget. If you show me, I'll remember. If you get me to do it, I'll understand. What is discipleship and mentoring? It's I am loving you, and I expect you then to go and pass it on. When you're discipling somebody, you expect to see change. This is why Paul says, I want you to be more like me. He's not saying I'm perfect, but he's saying your life should be changed. That's my goal. And you should be doing the things that I think we should be doing. I will love you, and I will expect you to love others. See, the focus then, why we get together, it's to be changed. It's to be transformed. It's to leave behind that flesh that others see and that the devil accuses us of. Rightly so. But we know God has cast it as far away as the east is from the west because it's under the blood of his son. And we are his holy nation. A royal priesthood. And we are looking for the fruit of the spirit to blossom in each other. We are encouraging those good deeds. We want to see God more active in each other's lives. We want to know what the Spirit is doing in your life. We want to know how the Spirit is changing you. Partly because I want to help you keep growing and partly because I need to follow you. I need to see how it works so I can do it too, so I can allow the Spirit to work in me more. It's simply called eternal living. <laughs> Eternal life isn't something we get. It's what we do, and we do it. We start doing it the moment we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's going to be a major change when we get rid of these bodies, absolutely, but we're living eternally now. We're becoming more like our Father. We're becoming more reunited to our Creator. Through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, eternal life has begun, and it's only going to get better. So let's get back to Hebrews. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, we do have that eternal perspective in our relationships. 
we do realize that God hasn't finished with his assembly, that this assembly, this group, this kahal, this ecclesia, this church that he envisioned before the foundation of the world is going to carry on after the world is rolled up like a scroll. And so our eyes are on that as the day approaches. We are moving on. God has responsibilities for us. He has jobs for us. And so we're encouraging others to be prepared for that. Okay, so quickly, number three. We'll make it real quick. How? How do we get together? What does this look like? Don't forsake getting together. Okay, what does it mean? I've seen it in lots of places. Two men sitting down for coffee. And they don't have to be having a Bible study, but they are checking in on each other. They are encouraging each other. It doesn't sound necessarily like a spiritual time, but they're keeping an eye on each other. They know when they have to say, wait wait a minute, you you shouldn't be doing that. Two women going for a walk or doing their shopping together, and they're talking the whole time. They're keeping an eye on each other. They're ready to encourage each other. They're looking to see more of God in each other. I see it sometimes in the summer, the same time every week when there's a group of families that meet on the pier for ice cream. Nobody pulls out a Bible but they get together. They like each other. They're loving each other. They're encouraging each other. They're keeping an eye on each other, holding each other accountable. When something comes up, well, then you can just get together with one of them later in the week. But it's part of the body. I've seen it with Ryan and his team trying to keep up with youth as they run from one end of the lobby to the other end of the gym. And they're just spending time with those kids to, to let them know that they're loved and accepted not only by humans, but by a greater power too. Sunshine Play School. Some of those kids, some of those families, this is the only building that's called a church, so they enter. They, they do it to bring their kids to Sunshine Play School. And because of that, over the years, there's many families that are attending various churches in town, including ours, because there was something there. People were loving each other. Seniors get together downstairs. They're encouraging each other, strengthening each other, holding each other accountable. And we do this. We need to do this. We gather here as as many of us as, as can be here. And we've got the worship leaders encouraging us, urging us to love and good deeds, urging us to love God, helping us, giving us a vehicle of music to praise God, because we need to be able to do that. We need to do it on our own. We need to do it when you're driving down the street and you've got some gospel music and you're singing along. Yes. But we need to do it together. We've got some diehard hockey fans here. I watch every game of the Canucks. If they can't watch it on TV, they listen on the radio. But if you talk to them, they don't remember every game they've seen or heard. But they remember every time they went to Vancouver and watched them live. Because there's something different about being a group of 20,000 people and you're all staring at the same puck. And you can have a wonderful time of worship with God on your own, but there's something different about being here with 20 people or 50 people or 250 people, and we're all focused on the same lamb. And we're all praising that lamb. And we need that. It's different than just doing it on your own and saying, thanks, God, for the food. No, it's we getting together because we're building each other and we're strengthening each other. And the leaders up here are giving us vehicles to do that, and they're encouraging us. And Steve opens the word, and he, he challenges us. And so when you and I run into each other on Thursday, we know, we both know what we heard here. We can hold each other accountable, or we can remind someone. Remember two weeks ago he was talking about that? And we're growing together. We're challenging each other. We're urging each other in this eternal life 
as being part of this eternal group, the church of Jesus Christ. Let us not neglect meeting together. We want each of us individually to be a Christian, but don't forget, Jesus didn't send us out in the world to make individuals Christians, to convert people to Christianity. He never says anything like that. He says, go in the world and make disciples, build relationships, live in each other's lives. And when Jesus returns, he's not coming back for a bunch of random individuals who are saved. He's coming back for one thing, his people, his church, his body, his kahal, his ecclesia. That's who we are. It's a spiritual thing. It's a God thing. It's got a great purpose, and we need it. We'll invite the worship team up as we pray. Father, again, we do thank you for your word and the way you work among us. Thank you for calling us as individuals and saving us as individuals. Thank you for making us your people. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.